Greetings, dear listener. This is Ian McKenzie. The following is a conversation recap for our Pandemic is a Prism series, where Zamir and I harvest our reflections after each session. It is recommended you listen first to the full episode with the guest, and then come here afterward. Enjoy. Greetings. Greetings, good people. My name is Ian McKenzie. I'm here joined by Zamir Danji. And we are, uh, I was just appreciating the bird song actually behind you. Yeah. We, as we, we, we took a moment to ground before entering into this conversation recap, um, I'm speaking to the session we recently had for the Pandemic is a Prism series with Kelly Brogan, um, who, which stirred a lot of controversy. Um, I mean, we knew that going in, that it, there would be some, certainly some, some questions and around the choice and around how the session might be conducted. And at the same time, I mean, I will say I was still somewhat surprised by the amount of uh, response that it got, even before it, even before we conducted the conversation, it was, you know, pretty lit up, um, largely on Facebook or mostly on Facebook with um, just to give it a, uh, a people a sense. I mean, I think the, the original post is over 200 comments now. Um, I would say largely slanted by those who questioned the decision to have someone on who's, as we named, part of the disinformation dozen, uh, one who's credited with spreading a lot of vaccine misinformation online. And um, and so there was, yeah, real questions about why would we include somebody like that? And so I think this intention for this recap is to be able to speak to that more clearly, like what was our intention, both with the series and with this conversation, to recap some of the key elements that were in the conversation and, and of the comments that came before and after, and also to offer perhaps some further insight actually into what's been made visible because of the fact that this has happened and the response has happened and, and how it relates to the whole series and to this moment. It's mm -hmm. a lot to cover in 30-ish uh, minutes, but uh, we'll see how we do. Yeah. Um, and I understand, Zamir, as well, you had a thought too on really the nature of war, I believe, that maybe you can guide us in today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, before I, I, I speak to the war, as you said, is our intention of a mythopoetic bridge between divided worldviews. And I had this, this image of a river flowing and a bridge over it connecting two shores. And that this river is this, this ever-flowing engagement, this ever-flowing truth that actually both sides are drawing upon this river of truth and this river of experience and that a bridge is supposed to actually help us to cross between one or the other. And, you know, and I was thinking about what, you know, war often is this sort of destruction of those bridges and these, these sides are forever split. And today being Remembrance Day is so interesting, you know, to remember the scourge of war, to remember the cost of war, and that war is something that we have come to understand as human beings is probably the, the worst activity that we can engage in especially for the children. There's a, a quote from Osho, I'll read a few lines. He says, war exists not because there are warring groups outside in the world. Fundamentally, war exists because man is in conflict. The root of war is within. On the outside, you see only the branches and the foliage of it. After each 10 years, humanity needs a great world war. In 10 years' time, man accumulates so much rage, madness, and sanity inside him that it has to erupt. Hmm. And so as we 
as I was reflecting, reflecting on this, that, you know, there was such a, an outpouring um, upon the announcement of this where uh, people were so willing to exercise the pent up um, impulses for blame and for anger, uh, for judgment, for vitriol, for the, for the othering, right? And that it, it's almost, as we've seen in, in social media, that it's just sort of underneath the surface, waiting for the right spark to allow the, the warring instinct, the conflict instinct in man and woman to erupt. And often we don't see how it's waiting in us all along. And we project that out onto the other. Something that um, I wanted to just bring up here in this, because if we are going to truly find a bridge in divided worldviews, uh, well, I know that you're going to lead us into what does that mean and what does that look like? Mm. Yeah, thanks, Amir. Um, you know, I think it's important to restate one. I think that those who maybe came to the series um, just upon this announcement, like maybe we're only entering in through this conversation uh, with Kelly Brogan, may not have a complete understanding about what is the intention of the series. Um, and so what I want to do initially, though, is to see if I can faithfully render what the, the, the distillation of the main critique is about giving somebody like this platform from the side of pro, let's say from the pro vaccine um, side. And this is my, my understanding of it, why you would not do this. It's because here is someone who's been uh, more widely known as, as, as spreading misinformation right, about, about the vaccine or information that doesn't correspond to the mainstream's understanding about what's, what the vaccine is, how safe it is, this and that. Uh, and so the critics would say to give a, somebody like this a platform who therefore is intentionally causing harm is thereby proxy validating their worldviews and therefore also likely to cause harm, likely to cause more harm. And so from that seat, I can fully understand why somebody would feel really suspect with our decision to platform someone like that. Um, and therefore, they, if, if entering into the conversation, they would want a degree of real challenge and you know, ferocity in, in these areas, which do differ quite a bit from the mainstream, uh, to be able to you know, call them out to 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 yeah to to compete in that way that that's understandable that that would be the impulse right and for us not to be fully willing to you know quote do that in that context is also part of a sort of missing the mark or or in fact contributing further to the harm that's my sense right of a sort of broad distillation of why why we would not uh, platform something like that so i think it's worth stating at least what's even become more clear too about what it is we're quote, doing here, right, with the series? What is the actual intention of the series? And, you know, I'm, this has been refined over time in the sense that by actually going through with this, you know, it's actually become more clear over time. And the way that I would describe it now is that it's not, it's not about finding a universal truth. Like what is, what is truth? What it is for me, and again, to you, and we may differ in some degrees, is that for me, it's about there's something happening amongst us right now. There's something significantly happening. And we're broadly calling it the pandemic, right? But it means a lot of things. If we try to isolate it into only it's a virus that has come among us, and this is our response to it, uh, sort of from a mass cultural or mass societal perspective, then we're, we're missing all of the other prismatic possibilities that this is actually illuminating in this time. 
And so I would say why we've proceeded in this way is to be able to walk around this prism that's this happening and ask each of these guests from where they're sitting, both from their life experience and their way of seeing, and to ask them, what do you see from where you're standing, looking at this prism, looking through this prism? So that for me is the, is the main intention of what we're doing with our guests. Um, so in that sense, I'm not, I'm not interested in challenging all the points about what they're saying with any of the guests per se, but what I'm really wanting to do is, can I fully inhabit their position? Um, not to invalidate it or not to say, well, any harm that's created is, you know, who cares about that? No, no, no. It's actually for the purposes of this, we need to be able to fully inhabit that position to see what we could see. Therefore, the idea that one would not uh, be willing to navigate to what seems to be an extreme position, right? Extreme in the sense of the mainstream's position to say you're, you can't go there and you can't have that conversation because it'll cause harm uh, is utterly uh, missing a key piece of this prismatic puzzle that we're trying to decipher. And so for myself, and I believe for you as well, it's vital that we're actually willing to go and have these conversations with people to actually say, I need to fully, I need to understand it is what you're seeing because only in the totality of the different perspectives are we might, might be able to see uh, what all of them illuminate together. Yeah. And, and the very act of doing that is the formation of a bridge. I mean, if you in any kind of real sincere uh, conflict resolution between two groups is the person who's willing to put themselves to deeply listen to the view inside of the other is the one who can truly understand where they're coming from and why. Um, and that if they know their intention and why they're doing it, they're not threatened by the fact that they're doing that with that person internally. They're at risk, perhaps. And so uh, where I did notice that there might have been some concern for people is um, if they perceive that the other person's view, and in and, and all religions and cultures of doing that, they don't go talk to that group, because if you do, then you'll get infected by their ideas, so quote unquote, right? And then what does that mean about you, right? This is a very ancient you know, fear that we've carried, um, one that still is present within us and something that I think we need to speak to. I think part of my interest or what I've seen in this series is um, the, the reason why we really leapt on this opportunity for the pandemic as a prism is because it's such an immense event of global significance it is bringing up from the murky depths of the subconscious elements of society elements of our programming and conditioning up to the surface for us to be able to really see and talk about it right and if we don't do that now once things return back to quote unquote normal we we forget that it was there and this is one thing that we want to do is to, to look at it while it's fresh well, this, this is the question too. I mean, the, for me is if someone's willing to enter into a conversation on good faith, really, and have that alternative or oppositional viewpoint articulated well in front of them, then the question then becomes, are, do you want to make contact actually? Like, do you, are you willing to set aside your prejudice to be willing to inhabit that position? Um, 
because that's a prerequisite for actually making a bridge between worldviews, right? The because uh, there's a lot of comments right in the in the the thread for those who saw it and those who didn't that there was this sense of um, outright dismissal right from the outset, and even certain. And I'll, we'll get into some of the content as well. But you you might notice as well we haven't touched on the specific content yet. But I, there will. There's a couple points too. I mean, I have great contention with, and I'm sure you do as well. But the outright dismissal um, and characterizations that I would say are largely um, sort of thin and and like really show a certain degree of unwillingness to consider, then there's a deep um, shadow there at play. Absolutely. Right? Because, because it's Absolutely. not so much even about, quote, Kelly Brogan in this moment. Yeah, it's about that that worldview is actually connected to a lot of people out there. And this whole idea of essentially creating a, a sort of monotheistic sense of agreement, even for people who are, quote, willing to get the vaccine or not, or, or that are willing, that there's something deeply um, consequential, right, about how it, how it goes about, what simmers further under the surface. Um, like these things just don't, they're not a victory. Or you could say if there is a victory, then there's a loser. And that always means that something is left untended. Uh, why I think this work is so important to give a personal example is when I went to my roommate and I told her, okay, well, you know what? I'm interested in getting the vaccine. And, um, you know, when I first moved into this house with her, her condition okay, for anybody coming in is that, you know, they were non-vaccinated because they may pose a risk to her. It was It was ironic to see that, it was the same rhetoric as people who are vaccinated saying they don't want to be in the room of someone who are unvaccinated, right? And, and, and we're seeing this dynamic play out again and again. But having lived with her for a number of months, having many conversations, understanding my values, understanding my inquiry and my perspective, all of a sudden she's like, yeah, okay, but you're different. All of a sudden I became different because there was an understanding of the person, that there's a human being who is a complex, nuanced accumulation of experiences and ideas that you've had a relationship with. And it's not so easy to judge them all of a sudden, right? And now you can actually cohabitate. But in the absence of that, we, we fall back onto the most easy thing for humans to do, which is to other, right? Well, I think there's there's much at stake, though, right? This is the other thing that I think is is part of the sort of the undercurrent here, of course, which is that there's real consequence to certain worldviews and how people proceed with them, right? And you know, just to get into a little bit now of some of the content of the conversation with Kelly, that I would characterize, or yeah, I would characterize a sense of a, of a reactivity to a system, a medical. Um, system that is largely based on, I've, I've really been seeing this lens of domination. Um, there's a conversation I had with author Rianne Eisler, where she really details this dif distinction between domination culture and partnership culture. And I see in what Kelly's been speaking to is this idea that the medical system, which is largely based on sort of symptomatic domination uh, and react responsiveness to those isolated variables, is itself um, sort of utterly giving away one's own intuitive sense of, you know, the, the connection to the body, what one may or may not understand is the right treatment for them, like all these ways, right, in which that is given away. So that's really rooted in her as this sort of fundamental distrust, right, of... It's a little bit more, it's a bit more nefarious than that, that this is a system that's an abusive system that thrives on your disempowerment. 
and needs to have that dynamic played out in order for it to continue to exist in its system of dominance. And until one is completely able to reclaim that sovereignty for themselves, they're playing out the equivalent of a pathological adolescence of submitting to this form of authority and always seeing themselves in a victim role in relationship to it. And they will be forever stuck in this dynamic, right? Yeah. I, I mean, that's sort of, it seems to me, like the spade that was being called. Yeah. And I mean, I think then then the shadow side of that, which, you know, was sort of named in some ways there, which was this idea of like, well, where's the village mindedness or where's the relational uh, sort of real willingness or obligations that come from essentially a, a sort of what feels like a hyper individualistic reactivity. Right. And there was even a, a line. I think she said something like, you know, this idea of, well, if we all become you know, sovereign individuals, then somehow that'll lead to a, a sort of enlightened culture, right? Of, of people reclaiming their power. And, and for me, what was sort of hovering in the background was very, the, the same argument that's often trotted out with neoliberalism, which is this idea that, you know, the market will, the, the invisible hand of God will, will sort of take care of everyone if, if individuals prosper and that will lift all boats. Right. Yeah. And, that that to me is not lost that 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 fit really well in that frame skin the skin of that frame i i think it's also important to know that before adam smith wrote the wealth of nations he wrote a book called the theory of moral sentiments okay and he was a moral philosopher and that there was a recognition that an understanding and a deep treatment of morality and ethics was necessary in order to give more and more liberty to society to function within such a system. I mean, these were economics was before it became economics, it was a branch of moral philosophy, right? And so people who were putting forth these had to deeply consider moral considerations. What I felt was absent was this recognition of, you know, that there is a foundation of ethics and moral consideration within all cultures that if not deeply thought about, it poses the risk of prematurely moving towards this sort of self-entitled sovereignty that actually erodes the fabric of, of, I think, the healthy aspects of society or what you would call village-mindedness. I mean, you know, Kelly said the words, she said, we're not ready to be of service to others. We're not ready to be communitarian, right? Mm. Um, which... For me, I, 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 I can understand in some ways where she's coming from, but, you know, I think that uh, the, the challenge is that um, if we're always going with what feels good, mm. you get in a very tricky territory, Right. But anyways, before we go too far down the line, I'll well, let you respond or have your. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. I mean, you know, of course, as well, the, as soon as you say that, you know, if we went with whatever feels good from a certain danger, of course, I'm thinking of the scene in The Simpsons, right? The episode, the sort of classic episode where this self-empowerment guru comes to town and he sort of latches on to Bart, who right, comes up with this idea, you know, oh, I do whatever I feel like. And he ends up turning that into a whole mantra that the whole town gets involved with and says, right, oh, well, I'll, I'll do whatever I feel like. And of course, you know, from there, it, the whole town descends into chaos as everybody's just doing what they feel like all the time. Right. And so there's a certain um, cautionary tale, you know, built into that episode, which is fantastic. Um, but that's it's interesting, though, is because what I would say is the distinction. And this is also why, you know, the topic of rites of passage came up and she spoke to this as well. But my question as well to her was this idea of, well, if we're reinstituting rites of passage and this idea of the maturation from the adolescent into the adult, and in her case, speaking of this idea of the sovereign adult, then you need to be, you need to have somewhere to be welcomed into, 
right? Like you need a culture to be welcomed into, which has a certain structure of sacred order. I think. Do I you really about. believe that, Ian? That you need a, a a community to recognize you in order to be mature or to be an adult? I, I personally, in my life, feel that I have crossed a threshold of maturity into adulthood. Um, while it did require some reflection and recognition, it, it, I didn't really need to wait for that community. I, I, though it would have been nice, perhaps, but we don't live in a world where you can wait for because you don't have the community to receive you. You're just going to have to remain immature, you know. Well, well, no, that's not. I guess what I'm trying to say is the bridge there to me is that then the the sort of cultural conversation comes into play. That there's a specific thing called a, a culture that understands this, that endorses this, right? That has a certain uncles and aunties and elders and all those that actually conduct right in a meaningful fashion these these transitions and then they welcome them into a culture which is itself in relation to life which is which is true to life is one way i would say that mm. right and so in the absence of that it actually reminds me of another thing uh it's funny the simpsons is coming up again the the, the monorail <laughs> it episode prophesies everything yeah. <laughs> There's the episode with the monorail where, uh, again, this like big idea, charlatan comes to town, yeah. builds the monorail. And at the very end, you know, they say, I think the commentary says, you know, they never fell for it again, except for, you know, and they name a couple of ridiculous <laughs> things. One is the escalator to nowhere. Right. Right. And then you can see the, them going up the escalator and then, ah, and then people would fall off. Ah. And it's, that's a little bit of what I felt with that sense of that an individual needs to find their own sovereign path and self-initiate and, you know, climb the ladder of maturity, but then into what? Right. And I actually felt this, ah, like that there was nowhere for them to go. I, I actually, I don't, I don't, I don't feel that there is nowhere for them to go. I think it comes back to, and, and this is in a way where she was speaking to, but it's the, the, the stepping onto the bus metaphor of an elderly woman steps on the bus and telling her daughters, you know what, don't get up and give that seat to her on the bus if you don't feel like giving it to her. And, oh, you know, I can understand perhaps that's, it's however she wants to instruct her children. It's not my right to decide how she should do it with her children. I get a sense that one of the hallmarks of maturity is to be able to see another person's need that may be greater than your own and you're willing to put yours aside in order to be of service to it, all of a sudden, that's the hallmark of being an adult. I mean, the whole journey of parenthood largely is teaching you the lesson of being able to do that. And nature is designed for us to learn it, right? To Within my culture, it becomes how do you become a mother and father to the world? And that's how you create Vasudeva Kutumbakam, which is the whole world as a family. What we're really talking about is a recognition of becoming a human family. And in order to do that, we have to develop the skill. Yes, we have to individuate, but maturity is recognizing our collective presence. At least that's how I view it. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that. And, and just to say as well that the, I mean, that particular example of, you know, I instruct my daughters not to give up their seat. There's a nuance there, which is, you know, you really have to be able to see it in context. And at the same time, that was something that the a lot of the people pointed out as a sort of ridiculous example of narcissistic me, me behavior, which is, again, it's it's easy to see that slander. And I thought, again, that that was probably poorly articulated. And yeah, you no, know, actually, I, I misquoted her. She really said, I, I instruct my body, daughters to not do anything that their body doesn't want them to do. And again, that's a very good message to give to your daughters. In fact, an essential message that a mother should be and that society should be giving to women that 
in the absence of that kind of a message where your body is meant to be in service can lead to all kinds of abuses. But in the wrong context, and this is what I brought up to her, is that when it becomes conflated with the wrong situation in context, that's when you get in trouble. And I found that happening a lot, the conflation. Yeah. Well, I want to touch on now the sort of what's come for me since in again, recognizing like, what is the overall intention of the series? Where are we at now? And like, what are we seeing? And I would say, based on that conversation with Kelly and what she brought, not so much, again, fully inhabiting because I agree with a lot of it, but like, what is the kernel of, of true that I wanted to surface, right? And then how does that relate actually to all these other pieces? And so this is actually what's come to me now. And I have a little clip actually that I want to play uh, to, to kind of get us in there. And so those of you online, you know, here uh, starts out a bit loud, I think, but uh, this will get us in yeah. just for a moment. I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species. I realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed. And the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague. That's a poignant moment there in the first <laughs> film of the series, which, um, you know, when I, I bring that up now for a reason to set a sort of mythic stage for what was was really reverberating for me upon that hearing that conversation and especially the part that I pulled as a quote um, that I read back to Kelly from some of her writing. And again, the reason I did that is because I'm really trying to distill like the mythic substructure of what she's speaking to, um, which to me was much more interesting in some ways than claims about, you know, everything can be healed with the body and, and, and these sort of things that, well, you know, again, if it got into this debate around scientific papers and this and that, it's just like, to me, again, that's not, that's not the intent of the series. And it's not that interesting to me for what we're trying to do here. And we, we, we actually, in some ways, would have even been out of our depth in some areas. Well, if you... <laughs> completely. And so my sense is to be able to say, okay, look, well, if we're standing over where she's standing and we're looking at this thing and we're, I'm asking her, what do you see? And she, this is what she says. Then I start to be able to see, based in relation to all the other parts, something starts to show itself which to me is actually very compelling. And to me, this is, here's something to wonder about. And, do, you need, do you need a drum roll? No, All right. well, the clip was a bit of a setup, but the point is, I don't need anybody to, they don't have to agree or disagree with what I'll share. But to me, this is what's being illuminated in, in what we're seeing now, or could, could be illuminated if we're willing to see it in such a way. It's something to wonder about. But the clip, the, clip, the, the piece I read to her was that she has this fundamental belief or view that I'll describe it this way is that 
civilization itself is bent on essentially extracting, consuming life energy, life vitality, is I think the way she uses the word. And then all of these systems of control are meant to you know, hold sway to the human vitality to put in service to this, this thing. And so for me, that crystallizes something really deep and also something we've touched on in other conversations, which is one that the, the whole technocratic paradigm or technocratic agenda, which often comes up in these circles um, of which Kelly and these others are, are warning about, they're sending a lot of alarm bells around, um, this whole idea that, you know, are you aware of this like wider uh, momentum, right? That's, that's sort of riding in on this virus. And they're speaking to that often to say, hey, look, it's not just about the vaccine. It's about everything else. And are you aware of that? And so for me to look at a civilization that sees this happening amongst its right, and the, the response to it by the, the dominant mainstream response is that this is a war, right, of this, this virus that has come among us, uh, and we have to win it. And we win it, in this case, through our arsenal of vaccines, primarily, or uniformly, actually. Um, and so, like Charles had said in the first interview we had, he said that the um, there's a reason why the the response to this threat is one of war, because in this case, civilization is only knows how to respond to a threat in that fashion, like that it sees as an enemy to itself. And so, what I want to sort of illuminate here is why I played the clip from The Matrix, is because in this case, Agent Smith, who is a representative of the robot and you know robot invasion or or the AI uh, robots that ended up taking over the planet. For those who have seen the film, you know, no spoiler. Um, who are then created the Matrix essentially to enslave humans. Now he says, "I figured you out," and he's pointing to the humans and he's saying, "You're not really a mammals. You're a virus." And why that's so compelling actually is because the idea that humans are inherently a virus comes from a civilization-based understanding of humanity, if that makes sense. Yeah. And this is something that's come up, yeah, it's come up in other contexts too, when I speak to indigenous guests, when I speak to those that are able to say, look, humanity and civilization are not the same thing, right? And uh, I, I appreciate Stephen Jenkinson in this regard, who has made it clear that the, uh, the human-centric um, understanding of humans as either you know the greatest thing the top of the chain um the the life's greatest creation in some sense or that they are inherently flawed inherently destructive and that they are sort of doomed to fail that itself is a reaction to the same civilization-based understanding of what humans are and when i speak to yeah when i speak to indigenous guests they'll, they'll say well, look well we don't have that story that's not the story of what humans are uh, Tyson, like Tyson Yonkaporta, again, a perfect example is that. So it's basically saying that the, uh, to be aware that the, res the understanding of ourselves is coming from inside a civilization paradigm, which is trying to perpetuate itself in this sense. And so I'll end with this just for now. I'll just say, I submit that the, the thing that has been riding humanity now for some time, of which the technocratic agenda in this story is so much a part of that, is that civilization itself is the virus mm -hmm. wow you know and i and i and i it is wonderful that you that sort of it took this interview to bring us to that 
sort of that mythopoetic claiming, which is part of our intention here. Um, and and why why myth is actually quite is considered at least in Indian culture history is real, you know, in a sense that. Campbell says that, you know, a myth is a metaphor that makes the trans transcendent transparent, which it's a way for us to see what's in the world behind the world. And if life around us is really mirroring the invisible world that we carry inside of us, if we look at the, as you said, the momentum or what this virus is heightened is the primary answers are to isolate and medicate. Um, there was a study done in 2010 by the Vancouver Foundation where they asked what was the biggest sort of social dilemma of the city. And it wasn't housing. It wasn't drugs. It was isolation. Okay. And this is pre-pandemic, you're saying? This is pre-pandemic. Yeah. Okay. We, the, the primary challenge we're seeing in the destruction of, of communities, um, the affliction of depression and suicide, particularly amongst youth, can largely be attributed to the trend towards further and further isolation. We're already going to that trend. And now, lo and behold, we have a virus that's saying isolate. And what are we doing in order to try to uh, numb ourselves from the pain and the realities of our increasingly self-imposed isolation or depending on the degree of how you see it imposed by outside of us by the systems that we've created, the ways in which we're coping of it is take this pill, here, medicate. So if it's mirroring anything to us, it's mirroring back to us already the deep undercurrents of what is moving through us as a society. And either we're going to look and say, is the answer more isolate and medicate or is it something else? And so that's for us to explore together. Well, and this too is that the, I'm very curious to know, or in some sense to ask the question, uh, this life won't survive if our way of life doesn't end. This is what Stephen Jenkinson has said in his book, A Generation's Worth, right? He has some a variation of that, which is, oh yeah, in order for life to continue, our way of life, this way of life must end. And that's the thing that, again, keeps slipping from view when, for example, a vaccine is deployed to alleviate the anxiety and create a sense of, okay, now can we can return to normalcy uh, when actually it's like a hollowed out sphere where there's just a thin crust right left on the surface and it all seems fine. Uh, but it continually is hollowed out from inside. And so again, this is my question is, if we're, if we're truly willing to be changed by this, because people say, oh, you know, it's changed everything, 2020, you know, now on, life's totally different. In really, in some ways, you know, I, I look on, I see big concerts now going on in certain places and travel kicking up again. And I'm like, life doesn't seem to think it's changed that much or that, and I won't even say humans now, that civilization has changed very much. Mm. Right. Because that's the real question. I mean, Sophie Strand in our conversation, even prior to this one, was pretty fierce on that as well. Right. That life itself is begging, it's pleading for this paradigm to end and to really come back into relationship, to come back into contact. And this is to me, too, where the crux of the possible futures arises, which is that, you know, we, we use this phrase truing right a lot in this series so far. And I would say that civilization is is not true to life, right? This is the nature of a domination-based system. It's actually not in contact because it's, it's constantly imposing, right? And the nugget of what Kelly's spoken to and others, I mean, Tyson, this idea that to come back into contact, to come back into relationship provides a certain degree of 
intelligence, actually, I would say the, the ground of intelligence comes from being in contact again. This is why that emphasis with Kelly on tuning back into the body, right? What does the body actually need? Because in some ways, if there was a deep attunement to the body once again, uh, I would make the case that, you know, so much of the ways in which we structure society would have to change, right? Because of this whole idea of, of constantly dominating into systems and as automatons or, or, you know, bound to clock time and getting here and working jobs and like all these things, like the body is actually a very good tuning fork, right? To say, this is not sustainable. You know, the nervous systems are all over the place and why so much numbing agents are deployed and all the rest. So in some ways that is a gateway, right? Yeah. To say, whoa, wait a second. Yeah. What do I actually need? Or like, what does my body actually need? Absolutely. Right? If I wasn't and dominating anymore. Totally. And it's essential. And this is where I think that, like you said, how do we create a bridge between divided worldviews? Because both are absolutely have a, have a, have a truth that if we really tune into it, it can help us to have this inner bridge where we can be both. I mean, in that opening quote that I read, you know, from Osho, that's basically what what he speaks to, right? He, he talks about uh, a world in which, you know, the body can be respected and not deny, denied and matter is not condemned and it's enjoyed, right? That we're able to appreciate the best of both worlds and to really have a place where we have the maturity to be able to integrate and one of the things that this conversation with Kelly mirrored to me was as we stand right now, it seems very, very far apart. I mean, when we, she said, I'm struggling with complementarity. I don't, as I stand right now with how I see things, I don't see how I could actually have any complementarity with the other perspective, right? That, it's impossible for me to be in a room because I would need to take yours on, which means that that actually denies mine. And we've seen that mirrored out in the world today. We're going to have to find a way to see beyond the confines of our own biases and see how we can meet in the middle. And when I say middle, I say middle, as we spoke in the beginning, that yin and yang does not mean that it's a complete balance that, oh, yeah, I take half of yours and half of mine and put it together. It's that we see where the seeds of truth within each are, just like the yin yang symbol has a seed of yin within the yang and the seed of yang within the yin. And that's where integration happens. So here's to us yeah. going there more. Well, I would just say, yeah, I know, and we're closing out the recap soon, um, is that you know, again, because it, it really depends on what the story is, right? Because if the story is that uh, civilization is headed headlong, right, over the cliff, then to find some kind of middle ground within that is actually deeply no. irresponsible. But, but within that, if we look at the language around climate change, is we have to learn how to better control and monitor the way in which we are using resources on the planet and the way that we're exploiting. We do need language of control. We do need language of monitoring. We do need systems that better help us to be able to get a gauge of this huge beast that we've created. Now, we can create those and use them in a benevolent way. It can also go completely wrong if we use it to monitor and control human rights and freedoms and thoughts. And, and that's when it gets messed up. But you can't just take one and completely throw out the other. That's what I'm saying is that there's a, there's a current that we have to listen to within each side. Yeah. I, I mean, I would suggest or maybe based on the evidence that I see, I don't see it going any other way than what you've just described. And like Tyson kind of tongue in cheek illuminated 
in the conversation that we had right to before where he basically drew out he's like yeah you know what we have this whole social credit system and we can track you and tell you all your health data that you need and like i don't see much evidence that it's going anywhere else we have to raise human consciousness and that's the work that we're here to do that many out there that are listening are here to do as we raise consciousness, the more inclusive we become in consciousness, the more mature that we become in mind and heart, the more that we can exercise wisdom and compassion and create systems that are in service to life. And your whole work, Ian, and I think why so many people respect you is because you have been, you do believe that. Otherwise, you wouldn't have created the documentaries that created and you wouldn't have hosted this series because you know that this is the work to be done and that there is this endless torch of light that can light other lamps. And that's the work that we have to continue to do. And in the words of your great mentor, to do it even without knowing whether what the result will be. Yes or no? Yeah, well, that's the he calls it a, you know, a sort of an adult way of proceeding is to basically be willing without knowing certainty what the outcome will be, which I, I absolutely agree. This is a moment for that. But maybe last thing I'll say, too, is that what I've I've really began to 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 understand the importance of is there is no coherence without first making contact mm. that's that's something that's continued to be true for me over and over and over again because if one proceeds into an encounter in a conversation with someone already convinced of their citadel certainty right and that the other person is wrong from the outset if they're not willing to be willing to consider in some fashion right then they're not they'll never make contact and there'll be ships in the night Right. Mm. And, and that's what we see over and over and over again. And mm -hmm. so I think we're missing. And that, that doesn't mean excuse. It doesn't mean agree, you know, to say, OK, yeah, it's all good. Right. It's not spiritual bypassing, but it's like saying the only way of of allowing co co coherence to lead to emergence. Right. This is to me where the intelligence of life, when it's allowed in, will offer the right orientation for what to do. It will not be a mental plan. That, that humans will cook up. That's pretty clear. You know, we see what's going on with COP. And again, the ridiculous shenanigans of more of the same. And, and it's not going to be that way. Uh, I don't see evidence of that happening. But the sooner we're able to continually tap in with the degree of saying, look, um, we don't know, but we cannot know together. Mm. And maybe I'll leave it at that. And maybe I'll just say that actually our next conversation with Bio Kamalafe, I believe, it, who was initially rescheduled because we we had him a few weeks ago. There was a scheduling issue. I'm very excited that he's actually the next one to follow this conversation, right? Uh, because his capacity to really take take us to wild places. And I would really implore anyone who's going to tune in uh, to that conversation to read his essay, "I Coronavirus," before the conversation. It's a hefty one, but it's utterly confounding and fantastic and uh and i highly recommend that you do that so uh for those listening here to gathering stories slash pandemic i mean what a ride grateful to be here with you zamir very and, grateful uh, to be here with you ian and, and everybody who's been tuning in and listening it's um it's a it's a, it's a privilege to be continued <laughs>